So Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. These are the words of Jesus. He says, you, the church, are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Stand, come. Praise God. It's good to be here. I'm used to people talking back. I can say amen or something. <laughs> All right. Uh, so good morning. Okay, that's better. Uh, let me, uh, you know, my wife's not, you know, usually I can look over at my wife and she can tell me when I'm doing good, when I'm not doing good. So you guys' faces are going to have to reveal whether or not I'm making sense or not. Because she had to uh, go over and serve. She was here for first service. Uh, today I'm going to do something a little different. I think you get some of the best teaching in Kansas City when it comes to Bible teaching. And so I really want to talk a little bit more about a conviction, a kind of a transition in my life, a different way of awakening to the gospel and the charge that God has with us. And so now let me, let me say this right up front. I think most of the time when with black people, we talk about what we've done well so that we can kind of overcome the static of people who saying that we don't do anything. And so when we talk among ourselves, we might, you know, tend to be bragging, but we're trying to overcome stereotypes. Uh, with white people, then it's the opposite. You don't say good things about yourself because people are going to think you're arrogant. And so therefore, you, you let other people say good things and you play it off like it really wasn't all that great. So... <laughs> Uh, so I just kind of want to say up front that I'm going to talk about some examples because I think that they, because they, I'm really kind of sharing from my heart uh, a premise that, uh, that I kind of fell into from this passage. And, uh, and so I'll talk about some things that have worked out really well in God's work in my life. But I just want to let you know I say it with the greatest uh, humility, recognizing that I'm still that guy who, who had dyslexia all through school and could not read and never got a spelling test right and, and rode a little yellow bus and had really big words on my, on my, <laughs> on my uh, reading book. So I, I'm still that same guy. Uh, but God has decided to craft some things through my life, and they've been very beneficial. So I kind of want to share that, and a lot of it is centered around this premise of salt and light. So let's go to God in prayer and ask for his blessings and go from there. Father, we come to you. Uh, yielding ourselves uh, in recognition of how amazing you are as our God. Lord, we are privileged to be a part of who you are, that you have invited us out of our sinful perspectives of life into an eternal view of all things. And as we take that view, we also take on the responsibility of being a reflection of you here on earth, which is a challenge for us every day because we battle in the flesh. So, Lord, as we go and make a difference on our, in our jobs, our vocations, and all the things that we do, we really want to have a perspective that matters most to you. So bless us today uh, with insight from your word. Let not the speaker stand in the way, but give me perfect health, logical progression of thought, and insight so that wisdom will be reflected in, in its articulation. Uh, but, Father, we most importantly want to give you glory. So allow us to change our lives as we hear your word in a way that will glorify
glorify you more and we'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. When I grew up, we did not have the GPS. Now, I am a person that get, I will get lost going around the block. I mean, I get lost quite a bit. My wife just don't understand the degree to which I am lost sometimes. And, and now, so I've become a lover of GPS. Every one of my vehicles have to have a GPS in it, or you know, put one in it. I mean, everywhere it goes, so it has to be. But when I grew up, we grew up with maps. And I don't mean map quest, I mean maps. I mean, like, you, you went to the gas station, you got a map, and you unfolded it and tell you where to go. And uh, the problem with maps is they give you general direction, and so you get to the general direction, and then you always run into this place where you have sort of a fork in the road. I either turn this way or I turn this way, and if you turn the wrong way, then it's going to determine the trajectory from that point on. It's going to also determine how long it takes you to get to your destination. If you turn the right way, then... Uh, it's, you're going to get there faster and things will be great. And so you're always at that point where you really need to make the right decision to be able to, 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 to go in the right place. And that is what I call a defining moment. A defi- and we have different defining moments in our lives. Like, you know, a defining moment, might, you might hear something like, I do. Once you hear, I do, that is a defining moment in your life. Everything in your life changes from that point on and never goes back to the way it was at first. Another defining moment, you might, uh, in a defining moment, you might hear the word, I'm pregnant. At that particular point, your life changes its trajectory and it never goes back to the way it was before. Sometimes you might hear the word, oops, and that's a defining moment. But what we are to do as Christians is we got to figure out If God's going to bring defining moments in our lives, how do we master the defining moments? So let me give you a premise that kind of gives you a little bit of a background that kind of helps you understand where I'm coming from as we dive into this passage. And here it is. It is this. It's a core belief of mine. It is that there are moments in our lives that are significantly designed for us as individuals that are in those moments that are orchestrated by God in his sovereign reign. There's some things that God, he will do with you as an individual that is according to his sovereign reign. God's doing something really big, but then he goes right down to proposing to you an individual choice to join him in that task or not. I believe those moments come. Those moments are designed to change the trajectory of our lives for the purpose of God's kingdom. Now, let me give you some examples so this can make sense. Paul was riding a horse. He was going down, and he was doing his job just on his vocation at work. And then all of a sudden, he got knocked off the horse, and there was a defining moment in his life right there that changed the trajectory of his life from that point on. He's not the only one. Moses. Moses was uh, doing some gardening, kind of hanging out in the bushes, and all of a sudden he look up, he sees a fire that doesn't go away, and then he hears a voice. And all of a sudden now his life has changed forever at that particular point. Sometimes things happen to you. Joseph, hanging out with his brothers, they decided to beat him up and sell him off. His life was changed from that point on. I mean, he didn't even, had any, you know, he didn't even make the choice, but it was a defining moment in his life. The disciples were hanging out working, and Jesus come walking through, some carpenter come walking through and tell them to give up your whole life and follow me. That was a defining moment for them. Some people don't respond well. Jonah had a defining moment. God says, listen, I'm going to change your idea about prejudice. And he says, no, you're not. So he went the wrong way, and then God had a well to help him go the right way. Uh, You know what I'm saying? I mean, it, it was a defining moment in his life. 
Noah had a defining moment when the culture was going wrong, then he decided to, to see grace in the eyes of God, and, and he was the one who could ride the ark. So, there, I, I, and so that general premise is how I look at my life. So here's, this is the question that I think we have to ask if we want to be ready for our defining moment. Uh, there's two questions. First of all, biblically speaking, who am I in relationship to heaven or God? And I think that's really easy. We can answer that question really, really easy. We know we're Christians. I mean, we have this whole list of things that we can say with reference to that. But here's the other question. The other question is, biblically speaking, who am I in relationship to the world? And I think that's the question that we don't spend time answering. And the reason why is because in order to answer that question, then we must have a biblical frame of reference when we come to that pit stop for that defining moment. Or as we don't even recognize it as a defining moment. So... There are four things that I have learned that are significantly important in order to be ready for the defining moments in your life. When God comes to you, then it probably won't be like Paul. You probably won't be riding a horse and see a bright light and get knocked off and then stay with a guy for a little while, for three years, and get taught by Jesus and then get sent back out on a mission. That probably won't happen to you. So our defining moments look very, very different, and I want us to be able to grasp those, but there are four things that need to be in place in order for it to happen, as I believe. And the first one is there must be total surrender. Paul puts it this way. He says, uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse number 20, Paul says, listen, I, have, I am no longer me because I have used Jesus to crucify me so I don't even exist anymore. Now, he was the tool that made me disappear. And now he's living and I'm not. And the life that I live in the body, in terms of my relationship with the world, is, is through him. He lives through me. So, I, so I, I, I had to totally surrender who I am so that I can be all that he is in me. Okay? So that's number one. The second thing is we have to recognize that you are his workmanship. Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 10. In other words... You can't take any credit for who you are or where you are or what has happened in your life because you are the result of his work. My grandfather used to whittle wood. If you go in and you get some of the wood, he would say, go pick up, go bring me some sticks. And I would go out and with, not, with just random subjective choice, pick up whatever stick I would pick up. And whatever stick I picked up and brought it back, when he got through with it, it was a masterpiece. Now, the stick couldn't brag and say, look at me, I'm bad. No, you couldn't because you did nothing. It was the work of the master that made you who you are. So you got to get that in your head if you're ever going to see these defining moments. The next thing is you have to be committed to dying daily. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter number 9, verse 12. He says, I am committed to every single day I will die. I will die daily by disciplining myself so the flesh never overrules the work that God is doing in my life. And whenever you get to the point where you got it, then you're in trouble. Here's, and, and the next point kind of emphasizes that, and that is this. Uh, never think that I am fixed. And we spend a lot of time trying to make our bodies better as if we think God is doing a remodel rather than an overhaul. And so, and so therefore, now, it's okay to be cute. It's okay to, to do your hair and put on your weave, weave and, and, and just, you know, I mean, you could do all that kind of stuff, but don't ever think that your body is something that God is preserving. It is a tool that is used for God's purpose on earth. And here's what Jeremiah says, 17 verse 9. It says this, the heart... Uh, is deceitful above all things. That means ain't nothing on the earth that is uh, slick enough to make it better. And then he says, and it is beyond cure. So therefore, God's not trying to fix me. So in these defining moments, 
What is he trying to do? And what is happening? Now, a biblical answer to that question for me uh, really comes in Matthew chapter number 5. And let me put it in the context. In Matthew chapter number 5, Jesus had just picked his disciples. He, he gathered his crew together, his administration, so to speak. And he's now coming in to introduce himself as the king. And so when he introduces himself, he began to kind of lay out who's going to benefit the kingdom and what the kingdom looks like. So he starts off by saying, let me tell you what kind of citizens will enjoy being in my kingdom. He does the Beatitudes. These are the blessed people in my kingdom. And then he goes in and said, and let me tell you who you are in relationship to the work that I am doing on earth. And then he says, you're salt and light. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And then he goes through and gives some details about every other thing. He talks about law. He talks about how you manage your money. He talks about prayer. Talks, all the other stuff kind of comes after that. But this whole idea is this, these are the people who will carry out the things that I am about to talk about. And here's how he describes them. He says, let me tell you what you are. Verse number 13, Matthew chapter 5, he says, you are the salt of the earth. The word earth there is not cosmos. It is not the system of the world. It is, you are the, he's talking about the land and the water. He says, you are the existence in this world that is supposed to be salt. The fact that you showed up ought to change the nature of things. And we'll talk about salt. And then he says this. He says, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, then how will it be salted again? And I think its implication is this. Ain't nothing else in the world that can make it salty again. So you are salt because of, you are salt and you are to impact the world. And if you don't impact the world, can't nothing impact you so the world can be impacted. Y'all follow me on that? All right. And then he says, then it's good for nothing to be thrown away. Then he says this in verse 14, you are the light of the world. In other words, the world there, he uses a different word than the earth. This world is cosmos which means culture in other words you bring light to the culture and then he says but if you hidden what's the point in having a light it's kind of paraphrased but get the picture so what i want to do is i want to spend a amount of time talking about uh first of all what does salt do what's the purpose of salt why do we have salt why do we have salt now he, he i think jesus was very wise in selecting a chemical that has specific uh, uh, elements that never change over time. I mean, salt is in itself what it is. And so therefore, 2,000 years ago, it was what it is, and now it is what it was. Okay? So, so it never changes. Uh, so what did it do, and what does it do? Well, first of all, salt creates thirst. Salt, actually, your body is designed so that when you have an overflow of salt in your blood, then your body automatically alerts your, uh, uh, brain, uh, some centers of your brain to create a passion for thirst. Salt's job, part of its job is to create thirst. That's why they give it to you at the bar, so that you can keep drinking. You know, they, you know the, the idea, they give you peanuts and they give you pretzels. You'll be like, they like me. They gave me free stuff. No, they don't like you. They just want you to keep drinking. And so, so they give you salty stuff uh, to make you drink. And so, and so the idea is that salt impacts us in a way that creates thirst. Here's the way Jesus puts it. He says, what happens is you ought to live your life in such a way that because you are in the world, people see me. So we ought to create thirst for Christ. People ought to want to know Christ because we exist. Here's the second thing. Salt preserves. If you take salt and rub it into something, then it preserves. Now, you can't just sprinkle it on top if you want preservation. But you got to get it in there, and when you get it in there deep enough, it preserves. So part of our responsibility is to preserve people's soul. You ought to be saved. 
Third thing the salt does is it seasons. It changes the flavor of the environment. And so therefore, because we exist, things ought to be different or more biblical because the more of us it is, then the more we should affect the flavor. And then the other thing is, he tells us that we ought to be light in the culture. So people ought to know how to find their way because we exist in the culture. All right, so those are the four things that we are to the world. And so if we were to answer the question, who am I to the world? He says, this is what you are to the world. Now, if we were to evaluate ourselves right now, we would discover that, you know, there's not a thirst for God. Uh, salvation is sort of at an all-time low in the United States. Uh, the culture definitely is not seeing things in a biblical way, nor do people find their pathway through this earth. So, so if you would evaluate with us, it seems like we're missing these defining moments. So let's talk about uh, how we become salt. What does it look like and how do we make the transition to become more salt-like? Well, here's the first one. First one is we must recognize that God's work in our lives in the flesh is based on who we are rather than what we do. Here's the deal. Salt can't go do things. Things happen because salt exists. Most of us want to do ministry, which means if you go do ministry, you haven't become a minister, so to speak. And so therefore, you turn it off and turn it on when you want to. Salt can't do that. What happens is when you show up on the scene, certain things need to happen because you exist. So therefore, you utilize who you are. Now, here's the way, it, you know, it's, it's really interesting when people talk about uh, the book of Jeremiah. There's a passage in Jeremiah that is, I think, one of the most heard, uh, and that is Jeremiah 29, verse number 11. And here's what it says. It says, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, the thoughts of peace and not evil or not harm, uh, to give you an expected end. And so people celebrate that verse, but they skip the context. Because the context, because uh, the question is, where are we going to find peace if we're held in captivity? Now, we're in a place that is not like us culturally, so therefore, where are we going to find peace? Well, you got to go back up, and here's what he says. He says, build your houses, verse number five, build your houses, dwell in them, plant your gardens, eat the fruit. He says, take wives, begot sons and daughters, take wives, and, uh, 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 well, excuse me, take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands. And then he says, uh, and he says, bear sons of them, in other words, have some kids. And then he says, and increase and don't decrease. Then he says, and then seek the, the, the welfare of the city. He says, uh, I, that I have uh, carried you away captive in, and pray for it, and that's where you will find your peace. When it has peace, you will have peace. So what he says is, you just need to be there. You just need to be a part of it, and the fact that you're there will create a change in the culture that comes from me, not something that you did. All you have to do to be the, is be the result of my work, and you will begin to make the difference that I've called you to make when you're in there, but you have to commit yourself to it. If you think about um, uh, with, with Brush Creek Partners, uh, an organization that, you know, I was uh, a part of in the final discussion. And, uh, this organization really kind of started where uh, I was a kid and I used to see a, um, somebody died, uh, pretty much uh, six or seven people died every year because of the floods that came from the west side of uh, Truce that were washed out over the east side. And the west side was so protected that the east side suffered 
And so people would be driving down, uh, driving down the street, and, the, and, the, and the, the creek would just wash them away. And so this happened like every year. So I went to funerals and all that stuff, and I remember about when I was a teenager, I said, man, when I grow up, I'm going to do something about this. Uh, not really thinking, but then later on, uh, when I started doing kind of the pastoral work, then, uh, I, you know, this was happening. I roamed up the street. I met a gentleman named uh, Father Tom Savage, who was over at Rockhurst. He was the president of Rockhurst College. Great guy. So, you know, so I meet Tom, and I start talking about him, about my bird and all this kind of stuff. Me and him begin to talk and everything else, and he says, well, we've got to get enough people together to be able to do it. It's going to cost a lot of money and everything else, and I didn't have any money. So what I did was I said, but there's a lot of Christians who work here, who work in the, in the hood. And they just leave after they get through. And so, uh, you know, so I started calling and meeting with them. Well, a lot of them were CEOs and chancellors of, uh, of universities and things. So I meet with them and I say, look, here's the deal. I want to have a conversation with you because we got to do something about what's happening down here. And I would tell them a problem and they would say, well, uh, how much do you need? And I would say, I don't need any money, but here's what I need. I need you to commit to you that, me, that you would give me two hours for 24 months every month for the next 24 months. And they said, okay, I mean, I can do that. That's, that's cheap. <laughs> uh, I can do that. So, so they committed to, 24, to two hours a month. And so we had about 25 commitments from some of the greatest leaders that were around here who were Christians. And they were given to missions and all this kind of stuff. But, but it wasn't doing Christianity. It was being a Christian. So we put all these guys together. Now, the day we had the first meeting, instead of uh, just I invited all of them to the meeting, the day we had the first meeting, I made a call to the mayor's office and said, hey, guess what? These people are all meeting. And uh, he says, what are you meeting about? I said, I don't know, but you got an invitation. If I were you, I'd make it. And so he showed up. The city council showed up. I called the state legislators. They showed up. I called the representatives. They showed up. So all these people showed up at the meeting. Now, all of these people came to the meeting, not because of me, because I wasn't nobody, but because these other folks were there at the meeting. And so I could pitch the vision at the meeting for what we wanted to do. And, uh, uh, you know, and then after, our, after the 30-minute the pitch of the vision, these guys spent an hour and a half together, and by the time we got together, we started having an organization that would last 14 years and do $3 billion worth of transformation in order to make East and West Truths uh, something that people can enjoy, and it is still going on today. Now, all of that happened simply because of who they were, not necessarily because of what they were doing. I mean, y'all get me? And so, so we got to be able to recognize that who I am is what God wants to use, but I got to be able to invest my resources in the places where God has called me to impact. All right, hang with me for just a moment. The next one is we must see our relationship to the world, our cultural privilege, uh, we must use that as, uh, to, as an advantage in the, in the kingdom agenda. Uh, we think about Nehemiah when I think about this, and I'll talk a little bit about some issues I think are significant. Uh, but Nehemiah was, uh, and I'll summarize this, in, but it's in Nehemiah 1 if you want to read it. Uh, but Nehemiah was, he was uh, doing his job, his regular vocation, everything else, and then one of his hood, homeboys from the hood came up to visit with him. So he comes in, he says, hey, what's going on? They, they uh, clap and shake and do whatever they want. And he says, so, so what's happening back at the crib? And he says, hey, man, he said, do you realize that the walls are down in Jerusalem, the city, it, crime is high, uh, economics are poor, uh, the real estate is falling apart. I mean, everything is devastated back there in the city. So now, here's the deal. When uh, uh, Nehemiah's friend, he left, Nehemiah could not let it rest. And so what Nehemiah said was, who am I in relationship to, the, to Jerusalem? And he recognized who he was but he also recognized who he was to the culture. 
he was the guy who grew up and knew the king and had a lot of uh, opportunities. So what he did was he went to the king and said, hey, I got a problem. And, uh, and he had a discussion with the king. And not only, and so he got some time off work to go in and take the skills that he learned being a leader and then implement them in the community. Uh, he also had uh, got a grant from the, from the uh, leader uh, the government to be able to come down and restore uh, the place so that it could be secure. He also got a endorsement from the leader to tell everybody to leave him alone while he was transporting back and forth while he was up and down there. So everything that he was in the culture became an advantage for the kingdom. See that with me? Let me tell you how that worked in my life. When I first got hired at Sprint Corporation, uh, Sprint was trying to figure out who they wanted to be and they were drifting from being United Telecom to trying to figure out what long distance was going to do because the Bell companies had just broke up and some people might not even know what the Bell companies are because y'all young. But, but once upon a time it was a monopoly on long distance. And so uh, while all of this was happening, you know, I happened to get hired. Now, when I got hired, I was a minority. I got hired in there. And then what they said was we got a government contract. And so they were bringing in all of this training and all this leadership stuff. Now, at the same time, we were trying to start the church. And so uh, so what I did was uh, they invited me to come in and they said, well, man, we got this uh, contract and we don't have any minorities. Now, this is where my black privilege came in. Because <laughs> I said, I'm a minority. <laughs> and then all of a sudden what they did was they took me and they said, well, let's use him. And so they used me uh, to balance the scale, right? And so there, therefore, I went through and I went through training. By the time it was over with, I went through 136 leadership training courses to be able to prepare me uh, to justify that they needed a minority. So my black privilege gave me opportunities that your white privilege wouldn't have not have given you. And so now all of a sudden I go through all that training. However, every time I went through training, I gathered a group of pastors and went back into the city and began to say, guess what we learned this time? And we would sit down. So I'm learning stuff over here and I'm going back and teaching over here. So I used my black privilege to be able to offer opportunities to people who would not get those opportunities because my privilege is only beneficial to the kingdom okay you see so so i mean i mean and that's the key and i'm not the only one that's done that esther did the same thing she used her privilege to benefit jerusalem moses did the same thing you think anybody could have walked up to pharaoh and and summoned a meeting and told him to let his economic stability go no he needed somebody who had privilege enough to be able to at least set up the meeting so he used his privilege to be able to do that. A lot of times we don't recognize that we have a natural privilege in the culture. Not because of you, but because of the culture. If I were going to put together a basketball team, and, and there, were three, there were two tall people, real tall person, and then two other tall people, and there were some short people, what if I came in and said, look, y'all, let's just play like this. We don't see height. Let's, let's all be even in place. Since, since y'all taller than us, we just want to make everybody balance. Let's play like we don't see height. No, I would never do that. I'm going to say, look, since you tall, go into the goal. Since you short, y'all dribble the ball. I mean, I'm going to put everybody where they need to be because this is about the kingdom. I mean, you with me? All right, let me move on to the third one. We're out of time. Here's the third one. First of all, uh, we must conclude that God's strategy for impacting the world requires us to put our identity as salt and light above every other personal uh, identifier. In other words, I cannot be a black Christian because that makes my team black and Christianity what I do on that team. 
I had to switch it around and say I had to be a Christian who's black. Then that makes my team Christianity and my activities uh, as a black man beneficial to the team. When you get hired to a team, your, your, your first commitment, your commitment can't be, I'm this good of a, you know, some, some people end up not getting traded and not getting picked and not continuing in, uh, in professional sports because they're uncoachable. And what that means is that the coach have decided that the team doesn't come before your individual stats. And if the team doesn't come before your individual stats, then the value that we need from you can't happen. And so part of us, many of us, identify ourselves as some, some other team that we're on that happens to be a Christian, and that is totally not salt. Okay? And so now, the idea of salt is that we got to recognize that the team that you're on must, must come first. I remember when I was at, uh, uh, at school at Southwest, and we had a major problem when, because, uh, you know, I got there before they bust everybody. And, and so when they bust everybody over, I had already gathered some friends that I played, played sports with. So now when the riots took place, then the black folks wanted me to be on the black team. I'm like, look, I ain't, no, I'm, I'm on this team. So I'm on the sports team at the school, so the friends on my sports team overruled who I was as a black person. I mean, y'all with me? In other words, just because everything, and this is the discussion that, that uh, uh, Paul had with Peter. He says, no, 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 you don't automatically become uh, more Jewish than you are Christians just because a bunch of Jews are in the room. You know, and so we got to identify the team, and that has to be superior over everything else. So the cause of everything else I do must relate to my relationship with Christ first. So when you say, who's your brother? Jesus said, I'm on God's team. So whoever is with God is my brother and my sister and my mother and my father. Y'all with me? All right. So let's talk about some strategies for Kansas City in about three minutes. Here's the first thing. We must redefine our view of treasures to include not only our resources, but our influence uh, in the culture and our authoritative positions and wherever we are. We can't, we can't let uh, uh, our perspective on what treasures are be defined by the world. They have to be defined by who we are as salt in the world. So, therefore, if I have opportunities, you know, like one of the things that, like, like, like my black privilege helps you out if you come to the hood. Uh, you know, I have a guy, I have a person that I see and I do some work with, and he lives out in Belton, Missouri. And in Belton, Missouri, it is, uh, it's a trailer park area out there. And nobody's my complexion. I mean, nobody's even close to my, my complexion, right? And so, whenever I drive out there, I call him and say, dude, look. I'm driving up on the lot, pull out, step outside so that when I get to my car, I see somebody who justifies the fact that I should be up in here. <laughs> because his white privilege gives me an opportunity. Now, here's the deal. I can say things about black people that y'all can't say. <laughs> However, to be able to say that, I might need your white privilege to give me the platform to be able to say it. So your white privilege gives you the platform to put me up there, and then my black privilege gives me the opportunity to say it. 
You know what I'm saying? I mean, and that's thinking like the kingdom. That's some folks who would never listen to me if it wasn't for you. And that's some folks who would never listen to you if it wasn't for me. You know, you know what always cracked me up was on mission trips. We go on mission trips. We went on a mission trip to Jamaica, uh, over in Kingston, Jamaica, to do some work in there. And we went over there, and w- the first thing we said when we got over there is some of the Jamaicans pulled me aside and said, they must be really serious. And I said, what do you mean? He says, white people always come over here, but no blacks ever come with them. So we think they really don't care about us. They're just doing things to make themselves feel good. So we go along with it. But since you came, then apparently they must really care about us. Because why would they skip all their own people and come all the way over here to help us? And then I said, they are good people. And then they said, did y'all hear that? They are good people. Now, all I had as an advantage over all those white people was I was black. And that black credibility gave me a privilege that white people did not have. However, most of the time when we do missions, we don't do enough missions together in the hood to be able to come and do missions together overseas. Same thing, when we, when we were building houses, habitat houses, uh, uh, Christ Community and Christian Fellowship together. Some of you uh, old hats might remember. Uh, we used to hang out and we, we would build a house every year. And we build a house, and you know what will happen is whenever we build in a house, we always led people to Christ. And the reason why is because everybody else who was doing it was all white. When we went over there and they saw the black and white together, then somebody would always come over. And one of two things would happen. People from the neighborhood would come up and help because they saw other black folks. And then the other thing was somebody would always say, tell us about your organization. And they didn't ask the whites. They asked the person who had the privilege in that community. And so when I go in and say, and I tell them, uh, and I lead them to Christ, we're leading them to the Lord because they understand our organization, has, we've leveraged our values in the world to be able to do kingdom business. And we are separated in such a sense that we never get an opportunity to enjoy that. Okay, let me, I think my, my three minutes are up. So let me hit the last one. We must bring salt, we must, be, we must see being salt and light as who or what you are in the culture rather than what you do. You can't say, I went and did ministry because salt don't do nothing but be what it is in the place it's supposed to be. Here's the thing. God has called us to be significant in the places that we are. But you know what we really kind of look like? You ever walked up and seen one of those tables? My wife is really into that. For me, when I go eat, I don't care about table settings and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it don't have to be cute. I was like, look, if you want your stuff to be clean, don't just give me some napkins and paper plates, and I'm good, because it's probably going to be messy when I get to. So, you know, I don't care about that. But my wife likes all that stuff, all decorated and all that kind of stuff whatever. And, and if you just see salt shakers that are just cute, there's one over here, there's one over here, one over here, one over here, and they do nothing to the meat, that's kind of what church looks like. Leveraging our unity is what changes the meat. That means when we come out of the shaker, we must be leveraged to the point because salt separated has no impact whatsoever. If you just want to kill salt, you, it, it says if it lost its savor, it can't lose its savor. Because its, it's, uh, it's saltability is the substance. In other words, it itself is the substance of salt. So it's impossible. The only way you can do that is to divide it up so much 
that it doesn't use its natural resources to be able to change the meat. But whenever you put it together, it does preserve, it does season, it does draw thirst, and it does lead to a pathway where light can guide people to the saving knowledge of Christ and the life that we're looking for under the umbrella of God's kingdom. Question is, who are you in the world? Not who are you in Christ? Let's pray. God, we just thank you so much for your goodness and your blessings. We ask that for your guidance and insight that would drive us to achieve your called agenda for us in Christ's name.